0: Hello everyone, uh, and welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station, now removed from our winter hibernation, or slowly coming out of our winter hibernation. I'm your host, Dan Fuller, and I am joined today by my bro, Ant Hurley. And how are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm in HQ this morning, uh, sunny, well, sunny, greyish, Dulston. freezing cold. The shop, is a, <laughs> the, the shop is a fridge at the moment.
0: If if anyone's listening, please help. We're being abused.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> please please free me from this prison.
0: <laughs> he won't turn on the heating. <laughs> it's
1: con- it's controlled remotely at this house in Peckham, <laughs> and he puts it up. You know, whenever you're about to drop into hypothermia,
0: <laughs> he makes he makes us wear thermometers. <laughs> <laughs> uh what's 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 uh who we got today
1: so today we've got andy sharp who's going to be talking about his amazing collection the english heretic collection uh which is a um, collection of ritual histories and magical geography from folklore uh, folk horror uh, politics and onwards across the uk
0: it's quite an interesting one really isn't it because it's kind of like the culmination of i think i think he says like almost 20 years worth of fieldwork and study and reading um and it's it's like a multimedia project that encompasses music and photography and and of course uh, prose writing um that kind of comes together into this kind of fascinating almanac of like the occult folklore kind of strange byways of the english landscape that are kind of unrecorded by official histories um and he's and he's got a lot to say about uh, lots of interesting episodes in our history and it is it's a, it's a fascinating book um what else? We're meant to be having interesting content, and I am drawing
1: a blank. Um, on this topic, if they, I mean if readers are interested, there's another great book called Ghostland by a guy called Edward Parnell that came out last year, yeah, yeah. which is on a similar sort of theme, talking about those writers, sort of Algernon Blackwood, Arthur Machen, even you know Susan Cooper and Ley Lines, I guess. So yeah. <laughs> far there's out a, shit.
0: <laughs> just
1: super far out deep shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Too deep for the likes of us. What's new HQ? Is there anything
1: interesting going on? New HQ. um, We've got a new subscription for Poetry this month. It's Comic Timing um, by Holly Pester. That's come out on Granter. And our indie fiction subscription is Poetics of Work by uh, Naomi Lefebvre, um, which is banging. So, yeah, yeah, if you're looking for a Valentine's gift or just... Something to hunker down with the poetry subscription and the fiction subscription is popping off,
0: yeah. And if you order before Wednesday the 17th, you can get both those titles. And if you give the code sub thank you that's you the letter U10, you get a 10% discount uh, just this month only. So do order it. It's an amazing set of titles. Before we well, who have we had before in the fiction? We've had Unknown Language by Hugh Lemmy and Hildegard of Bingen, which is an amazing uh, kind of. Remix of kind of ancient uh, writings by a 10th century best, Hilda of Bingen, which is amazing from the fantastic Igniter Press. Uh, Men Apparitions by Lynn Tillman, which is one of our books. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. Say no more. The burley Fisher slash Peninsula Mark of Quality and yeah, pure commerce. Pure Commerce. <laughs> and others that I can't quite remember yet. Uh, I think that's pretty much, I mean there's not really that much to report, is it? Like everything's a bit slow and boring. Um
1: Yeah, just kind of
0: I feel like I feel like the time of novelty lockdown content is over. Everyone just doesn't really want to talk about it anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely. So what true. are you doing
0: in your lockdown? Staring into the void. Um... I'm just
1: staring into the void and doing my best not to answer the phone.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Which I can't find.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we'll hand off and let an answer phone. <laughs> <Peace>. <laughs>
1: today
0: we are delving into the weird, occult byways of our island home, such as it is. Uh, we are joined today by Andy Sharp. Hello, Andy. Hi. Um, and he is the author of the English Heretic Collection, which is a. I mean, how do I sum it up? It is a. <laughs> I'm struggling. Um, it is a deep dive into the occult countercurrents of the British Isles. It covers an incredibly broad level of topics. You will find Churchill transformed into a bard. You will find conspiracies or occult conspiracies regarding the late Joe Kenzie Jr, you will find Ballard put into the Lovecraftian traditions of cosmic horror and much, much, much more as you'll hear as the interview uh, continues. Um, (laughs) Andy, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: I'm good, thanks. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. book's... uh... Book's gone down very well. Um, it's very rewarding because uh, um, obviously it's an anthology of seventeen years, discrete magazines, really. Indeed, um, so, indeed. So, yeah. so the books, as you say, an anthology of of a
0: project that's been going on since two thousand and three, um, called English Heretic. I was wondering if you could kind of let our listeners know a little bit about what English Heretic is, how it came to be, and uh, a little bit about the practice that informed it.
2: Okay, yeah. So English Heretic was um, I, I mean, uh, I'm a musician and a writer, and I've never really kind of uh, wanted to be either, to to the exclusion of enjoying life, really. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, English, English <laughs> heretic was was I was I was raising a young family in Suffolk, and uh, it came out of taking my family to um, ruins and things like that, curated by English Heritage, and uh, you know, having young kids who would play play out in the moats and stuff like that mm-hmm. you know or in the yeah, ruins and stuff like that and then the difference between the child engagement and then the adults were sort of sort of shuffled through an audio guide a dry rendering of history and then taken into the souvenir shop and sold jam and jigsaw puzzles yeah. and i just thought that it was a, uh, you know it was ripe for subversion um, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and a very interesting uh, uh an anarchist writer called bob black who wrote uh great set of essays called abolition of work and it was just an opportunity to put that to use. Um Bob Black famously sort of railed against sort of uh work for the sake of work and uh uh call for a ludic revolution, a playful, meaningful revolution. And I kind of tied in that sort of situation of thinking with a with an approach to uh um subverting landscape and and history and things like that and i was also doing, I was also doing music and writing and couldn't decide on both so i decided to do dual format and that was mainly in homage to these magazines in the 70s called Myth and magic and the unexplained mm-hmm. um that, those kind of sort of paranormal occult magazines that sort of promised you this realm um and and you know they came in parts you know and you collected parts these magazines so i was kind of homage to that and a way of sort of accessing that within a kind of playful, but mysterious and sometimes uncanny way. Awesome.
0: Awesome. That's that's really interesting that you talk about this kind of like sanitized version of history that uh, English heritage presents and the attempt to kind of try and rail against that. And and, and this this idea of like, you know, like the the way that kids, Respond to ruins and historical sites in the way that adults, the way that adults are encouraged to consume them, is 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 really interesting, and I feel that runs very deeply through the text. Um, so uh, so, you, but as I understand that you you publish zines and stuff quite quite
2: uh, over, the, yeah.
0: over the course of the project.
2: Yeah, there were there were magazines and CDs. So so uh, so it come with a magazine and a CD, and so subverting english heritage once i thought the idea it was quite easy it was read like black plaques as opposed to blue plaques yeah 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 like <laughs> as opposed to sites of heritage i really i just looked at their website their their website they had in 2003 and just did a straight satire on it <laughs> uh, you know menu for menu and uh, it sort of just fell into place then so the uh, the black plaques were then uh, kind of homages to uh uh People I became interested with in, mm. not in a curated way, but in a kind of organic way, so that, so so people I become obsessed with, or I felt like were trying to communicate with me, or something. Like that.
0: Um, I, I'd like to kind of delve a little bit into this idea of black plaques. I think they're a phenomenal idea um, because the people who are memorialising blue plaques tend to be overwhelmingly kind of sort of dry colonialist figures. Um, no, not exclusively, but <laughs> like a lot of them. Um, uh, now, this isn't uh, the black plaque process is very different to the blue plaque process, which I understand uh, in, entails a lot of kind of, you know, kind of committees and so on and so forth. But you kind of have an uh, almost like a ritualistic way of uh, let, put, placing black plaques down. Could you talk, tell, tell us a little bit about that? Please?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so the first plaque I did was for uh, Michael Rees, was the director of Witchfinder General. Uh-huh. And um, it, I, I kind of, the way it evolved was almost like someone, a restless spirit channeling me. So uh-huh. I used to go past, I lived in Ipswich, and I used to go past Ipswich Crematorium to work every day. Uh, and then I, I picked up this book in uh, London Bookshop, uh, London yeah. Bookshop. Um, which was a biography of Michael Reeves. And I knew a bit about him. And and then I read this book and suddenly uh, it mentioned that he was uh, cremated at uh, I- Ipswich Crematorium. He used to drive past that every day. And I suddenly got a sense that, oh, maybe he's trying to communicate. You know, maybe his his story or something like that is coming through the ether as I drive to work and things like that. And I just like yeah. that. Um, You know, uh, just to backtrack uh, Michael Reeves' uh did the, it? was a kind of a cult filmmaker or became a cult filmmaker, yeah. Mm-hmm. Two or three films, he was 26, did uh, Witchfinder General and then sank into great depression and took an accidental overdose of sleeping pills and died a year after making Witchfinder General. So, so that was the, the lost tragic figure. He wasn't kind of really on the radar of uh, of you know, a tragic figure. So, I thought he's he has some worth 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 commemorating but there was a sort of another loop to it um in the making of witch finder general or the the most infamous scene was a witch burning at uh laban and yeah in, in uh suffolk and mm. uh, it was a heavily censored scene very very frightening and and the day after the, the, the making of the film the locals said to ian Ogle, being the main actor i think you wakened some restless spirits in the yeah, town wow. through that uh and then i subsequently found out that uh, uh Sharon Tate made her last film in Lavenham. Around the time Michael Reeves died, she was murdered. Pierre Pasolini did Canterbury Tales there. He was mm-hmm. murdered. John Lennon did an experimental film with Yoko, and then he is murdered. Mm-hmm. So on top of the Reeves thing, there was a, cur- a kind of cursed uh, location as well. So I, that was a kind of conceit of it. And, and English Heritage was an organisation that was investigating these, these kind of weird weird uh situations almost like 40 and sort of investigation. But playful in a way, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was playing with, the, you know, a, a beckons of reality, if you like.
0: Yeah of course. And can I ask what the the, the atmosphere is like in that village? Um I, 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 I rewatched Witch General having like watched it a couple of weeks before having uh, read the book. Um and I kind of felt this kind of yearning to go and visit it. Um, as a writer and as a as a I guess an explorer, um, what's what's the how
2: does it, how's it feel to kind of walk well, there? Laum's very disney fight. La- 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 is is incredible. it's like all these beautiful houses and um, uh, m- all these kind of uh, half-timbered Tudor houses are listed. and yeah. it's very colorful and it's actually very busy. but actually where they do the the first scene, which is the the witch hanging, is a is a much smaller village called Kersey and you can still walk up the paddock and go up the hill and the really eerie thing about visiting Kersey it's a lot quieter and it's it, it's a lot less um, lot, lot less of a tourist trap yeah. um, when you go up the hill you can still see the scar in the landscape from this fictionalized hanging and that is very uncanny because it's actually a a marker of a, a fictionalized event or horrific event and i think yeah. that's kind of quite strange and, and kersey's an odd place because it, it's i didn't actually mention this in the book and i forgot about it completely but it, it's it's actually famous for a very very had a, a very very famous time trap uh time slip episode in the 50s where two young squaddies were walking through the village and then suddenly transplanted back to medieval times and mm. the uh, psychical research group were all investigating things like that so that's a very odd Place that's sort of it could still be in the sixteenth century in lots of different ways.
1: That um what you just said about the squaddies being transported back to uh, centuries before reminds me of the uh, the Operation Aphrodite moment. And um, you kind of link the. I mean, I'd really like you to just sort of outline the story because it's such as I found that such a fascinating link between two parts of history in like rural England.
2: Yeah, so I, I guess one of the things I'm really interested in is 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 do events, cosmic events, create a violent ricochet through time? Uh, you know, and, it, and, and this ricochet manifests as different sort of mythic stories. So a UFO encounter in one century might be seen as like witches flying in, 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 mm. in, in another. So the, the thing with the Joe Kennedy, Joe Kennedy Jr. was um, John F. Kennedy's older brother. And he was the one who was actually primed to be the president. Um, he was he was kind of the golden boy. He was a lot fitter than John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy um, was pretty weak physically. He had a, a spinal delicacy. He had Addison's uh, disease as well. So he was, he was very ill, really, most of his life. Um, but he became an accidental war hero, and his uh, uh, boat was hit by... To, Torpedo and saved a few say uh, saved some of his crew, um, and he then became the kind of favorite son in Joe Kennedy Sr. Very ambitious, uh, um, ruthless character. Their father who's um gunning for you know his his sons to be present one of them. So Joe Jen, JFK became an accidental hero. Joe Kennedy, in order to steal back the mantle, then. Um, uh, volunteered for this uh kind of mad suicidal bombing mission f- that's that that flew from Norfolk over the channel uh to uh some of the uh super gun bases that Hitler had in uh, in Normandy um and and the mission involved two pilots going up in a in a plane full of this uh, really volatile explosive called Torpex. Uh, and then they would bail out over the channel and a, a, a mother, sh- mother sh- plane behind them would then radio control uh, these basic planes full of explosives to uh, to France. But these were kind of very rickety old planes and Joe Kennedy was flying his route from Firstfield, which is in Norfolk, over Suffolk, yeah. to the, mm-hmm. to, to the channel and the the plane exploded and exploded over a place called Blytheborough Mm -hmm. um in August 44 was it um and it actually exploded over this church in Blytheborough that had been supposedly visited by a devil dog in the 16th century, I think 15th, 16th century, around yeah. about the same time of year. 15, I play on this idea that this kind of violent ricochet could be seen as a as a as a as a double event. Um, the, the 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 church was, was both scorched by this devil dog and also scorched by this uh, this explosion. So I'm just really here, kind of looking at, at as as say history's violent ricochet. I say yeah. in the yeah. book, sorry. Um, and I think I give the example of the the meteorite explosion that that Ian Watson talks about in a book called Chekhov's Journey, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, in uh, Russia. And there's all you know, kind of these all these kind of ideas that you know uh, I think Stanislav Lem or the Stugarsky brothers wrote about yeah. about it being some some t- uh, flying machine going backwards or something like that. Yeah, yeah I just yeah. like these, you know, I'm I'm not. You know, I'm not saying true, but what I'm saying is that I like the way that you can double the landscape, and it can be uh, a modern event and a mythic event, and they can overlay. So, yeah, that's that, that's a really kind of fascinating view of
0: things, and 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 it, the, you know, the Tagusko event in in Siberia is is really fascinating, and as you say, it like reverberates through Russian literature. There's um, recently been a book by a guy called Vladimir Sorokin. You like this book called The Ice Trilogy that's about this kind of cult that finds something strange in there. In the wilderness and and i i think one of the really amazing things about the english heritage collection is as you say these kind of uh, doubling over of events these um kind of serendipitous dark coincidences that somehow um enter the public psyche um and yeah that was something i thought about a lot when reading the book um i i also wanted to ask you a little bit to kind of pull back and be maybe a bit more theoretical um because as the Fascinating and uh, to me, slightly daunting uh, vein of theory going through, which is just phenomenal. Um, I kind of want to talk about that. There's this kind of topographical current that runs through a lot of what you do, um, and I kind of uh, a, a lot of the stories involve kind of sort of rambles through the the English countryside, the British countryside, um, and I kind of uh, kind of wanted to kind of ask you kind of in, in through the creation of English heretic. Um, what was uh, as as a writer, as, a, as as somebody experiencing this, and, and try, especially trying to subvert the um, pastoralised English heri- heritage view of the place, uh, this kind of place that we inhabit. Um, how did you how, how how do you experience the topography of the landscape, and how does that impact your writing?
2: The original idea was to research, do a heavy amount of research, and then write fiction from it. And that was mm-hmm. that was the intended plan of the project. So I'd like to kind of in, in in doing that, I wanted to sh- have this background of research into the landscape and history and figures, like that, uh, um, and then show that on the on the website and then develop fiction from it. Mm-hmm. But what happened is the imagination doesn't doesn't like me tricked into you know like contrived sort of oh you're going to write fiction from that are you mm-hmm. ah, I'll show you what you can do, and and the imagination drives. Whatever you try and do, if you if you actually listen to your imagination, then it's then it will will preempt any kind of contrived notion of how you want to deliver a project, and that's kind of what I've run with mm-hmm. around about two thousand eight two thousand and nine. Um, I think uh, Gordon Byrne's book Born Yesterday came out, which was uh, uh, which was basically news as the news as fiction or the news as novel. I think that was how it was done. Mm-hmm and i kind of i think when i read that i thought yeah he's been brave here and i've written fiction in the past and, I, and i've always written a fiction in a way that was i uh, always like things like the active imagination of jungian concepts like that mm-hmm. and i thought why not just apply that to documentary writing mm-hmm. you know um where images double yeah you know
1: yeah
2: um, yeah uh, so again i, I uh, so what i'm looking through the landscape is is not so much is not so much for truth of uh biographical truth of landscape or historical truth or geographical truth what i'm looking for is an imaginal truth of landscape where the images tend to tell the story and and direct the narrative so um and this is very allied with kind of surrealist thinking so so someone like salvador dali had his paranoid critical method where essentially you just look at an object and then uh uh paint a kind of dream version of that object and these images were double and if you look at his some of his paintings he's just sitting there in um and he's painting the rocks but he's painting hallucinated versions of the rocks that that bring up all these kind of neurotic complexes and kind of doing something similar with uh um uh, a documentary approach so the the, you know these could i think a lot of these things you know if i had the budget or had the inclination would be documentaries would be like uh, uh, surreal versions of panorama or world in action or whatever uh, or even you know like a, or even survival or national geographic you know that, those kind of things so it, it then goes on from kind of english heritage you know, the, the historicized factual version of history to a dream version of history. or So that's what I'm consciously doing or became a conscious method. I thought, just run with that. I believe in this way of writing. Yeah. It doesn't mm. need to be fiction. It doesn't need to be fact. It can be a dream uh, narrative, you know, and held together by dream logic yeah. to a certain degree, which is why you get these strange sort of co I don't. I don't ever. Th- I don't think of them now as synchronicities. I think they're uh, as imaginal doubles, really. Mm-hmm. In in a lot of occasions, you know, you're just looking for a double image. Yeah, yeah. I
0: I, 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 I felt kind of the uh, shade of Arthur Machen in, in some of the passages uh, <laughs> in the book. Um, you know, his his
2: book, The Hill of Dreams, just definitely. Yeah, yeah. I talk about his story rituals. It's an incredible story that fed into my narrative rituals. A story about um, these children he's seen on um witson playing this game where they're, they're kind of like ritual killing of this other child, and uh, yeah. and you know, and uh, what I like about Macken is is that his horror is infused with this kind of folkloric information. They all you know, Macken stuff is feeding off British folklore. Another amazing story called Change, um, which is all kind of strangely f- fitted in with kind of mithraic liturgies and stuff like that so his his books are his books are very coded you know they're very layered codes so yeah mackinan's a a a very big influence really and a a, a, a very I love
1: those um I love those moments in the hill of dreams where he's sort of walking down a sort of country lane in the middle of the night and he suddenly envisages a huge sort of roman fort around him and he's kind of like building it with his own imagination but it's sort of linked into the sort of you know, the place as well as doing it for him. And yeah. something I really found so interesting was the atomic priesthood, um, you, you phrase it thusly in the book, that, um, and there's a quote about um, the stones at Avebury, which you say, um, what if they stored ancient toxic material constructed not as sites of pilgrimage worship, but forms of hostile architecture warnings from deep time. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that So, because people see these pilgrimage sites as sort of Stonehenge <laughs> and Avebury as these places that are sort of, you know, have these sort of good, you know, vibrations almost, of yeah. sort of, you know, and yeah. and you're sort of flipping that again on its head and inverting it and saying, well, they could be something else, you know?
2: Yeah. So that comes from looking at um, uh, my friend, Agnes Vinette is uh, she's doing her, PhD in nuclear semiotics. So um, <laughs> uh, it's an incredibly interesting area where uh it's kind of a um a multidisciplinary look at how we um how a future civilization would warn how how a future civilization would warn people away from places that are storing radioactive material with like half-life of thousands of years. And the, the reason being is that language kind of uh, our understanding of language and semantic lasts about a thousand years, uh, so three thousand years in the future, like someone saying "danger, radioactive material" will make no sense to someone to someone in the future mm. age. Uh, so th- this kind of think tank, Flem again involved in it. A whole, it's kind of very wacky, um, <laughs> think, uh, you know, but it's got a, uh, you know, it has a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a thoughtful end, really, and, and they were like giving, you know. Again, you know, with this problem in mind, uh, they posit- you know, they propose how to various people like folklorists, uh, you know, religious teachers, science fiction writers, artists, mm. how we would then communicate this across, you know, barriers of language loss. And, um, and so it's an ongoing discipline, but uh, um, and so all, all sort of. One of the one of the theories is to create hostile architecture. So you know you you know you know make things with mazes or spikes and stuff like that. But one of the arguments against that, if we can get to the moon, then we'll climb over some spikes to get to mm-hmm. uh, into into a building if it's interesting enough. So mm-hmm. uh, I did some writing about a place called Orford Ness, and I wrote a kind of speculative piece that was just this crazy sort of, um, what if this place is not really a um a nuclear facility but it's actually you know or it's actually like some kind of lovecraftian sort of temples and stuff like that mm-hmm. and it was just a pastiche on on kind of how far you can take psychogeography into the kind of kind of insanely lovecraftian realm but mixing them with of sort of thinking but when i spoke when and yes last year started talking to me about nu- nuclear semiotics and i started reviewing this older material i realized that was the central metaphor i was saying these place, what if the places that were uh, are hostile now, you know, what are they? And then I suddenly thought back to play, you know, the places that we go to that are mysterious uh, and have similar structures, you know, dolmens and, and these weird pagodas and things like that. And I thought, hold on, we're all attracted to these places like Stonehenge. Maybe, you know, they these are barriers. Maybe they've made some sort of some sort of cosmic material in there. Um, mm-hmm. And it, uh, uh, and I was astounded by the the, the children's TV series from the seventies called Children of the S- Children of the Stones, which was exactly proposing this theory that that the Avery was uh, was actually the result of these kind of a druid maverick druid uh, priests creating this uh, wormhole. And I was thinking, this is amazing. This is actually the same principle. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so again, it's just. It's 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 basically speculating on on landscape in a completely trying to turn landscape to, completely on its head, really, um, mm. in a real way, you know. Um, so so it's, yeah, sometimes your wildest speculations become you know um, theory and things like that. Um,
0: it's really interesting you mentioned Children of the Stones um, because I have wanted to watch it for ages. Uh, Stuart Lee, I think, does a long bit about how much he uh, loves that uh, TV show, but I haven't been able to find it. So if any listeners know where to uh, find this TV show, please email podcast.pennemyshebrick.com. Um, um, Andy, I, I want you to kind of like... So there's a strong current of kind of like in, like British occult theory running through like all of the writing, all of the essays that you write. Um, and, you know, you talk about George McDonagh and, and Robert Graves um, a great deal. Um, and I, yeah, I just kind of wanted to ask you uh, kind of like how occult thinking uh, works into writing as like theory or uh, a testament or whatever um, and kind of, yeah, the, the kind of the influence of like kind of occult thinking. In, okay, uh, yeah,
2: in so, context. so, um... I think my interest, like any, I'm only really interested in magic as a as a tool to um, accelerate creativity, really. Okay, uh, cool. Uh, and uh, the, the, the 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 people I'm interested in are um, a British occultist called Kenneth Grant, who was yeah. a prodigy of Aleister Crowley, but went on to write nine volumes of this completely psychedelic magic. Really, um, yeah. uh, and he was very. He's been very influential, really, in in a lot of occult cultures. Big influence on industrial culture on uh, bands like Coil. Uh, oh, Coil. Yes. <laughs>
0: so,
2: so he, he 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 There's a big current of his work through through a lot of people. He he basically uh, uh, the occult artist Austin Spear was a close friend of his and his wife. He kept his kind of legacy alive and in actual fact invented a lot of spears magic uh spear was just kind of making this stuff up down the pub you know (laughs) and he created this kind of mythos around it but grant was really interesting in the sense that he kind of made he he looked at uh lovecraft's work and a lot of pulp uh, magic as as the real thing so he made this discrimination no discrimination between kind of visionary writers macken he's big on yeah. macken as well that yeah. they were accessing k- kind of some psychic reality in their writing and i think that's my uh, big influence is the, the way that he he suspends disbelief in in the efficacy of, of fiction and music as well you know he says kind of he looks at um certain ancient buddhist sects and said you know this stuff is they're 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 communicating with ufos through their music and stuff like that you know uh and it's wild and speculative but it's also incredibly exciting and, mm-hmm. and you know and incredibly intoxicating magic
1: i was like um i j- um, just thinking you've um you said you're broadcasting at the moment from muswell hill north london and just in the way you sort of view place and the magnetism in time and place and stuff, do you have any theories about why you might have been drawn to Muswell Hill specifically in London? And also for sort of Londoners listening, in, are there any sort of, you know, pilgrimage sites or walks that you go on? Because I know there's a short passage in the book where you talk about Arthur Macken um in london and there's a short story that he has where he goes into a london park i think it's maybe hyde park
2: but yeah um, sure. yeah green park yeah oh green
1: park sorry yeah and you know just you know just as london is like this kind of you know because so many people live here and they never leave or they don't get to get out that often you know i feel like london is such a i mean it's been well documented but a walking city like are there any routes? yeah, sort of yeah. Or, you know well, ways yeah. around it
2: well, it's interesting. Um, I've never really written that much about London, but I moved down after twenty-five years. Obviously, you got Dennis Nielsen round the corner in muswell Hill, <laughs> you nice, know. Yeah. So, so you got those kind of dark sort of. Uh, there's there's that presence in Muswell Hill, but it's interesting. I've I spent the last year. Um, uh, I've written a draft of a new book, which is exclusively about London, oh, and cool. it's, and it's to do with London film locations, and it's been. An absolute revelation. Looking at London film locations, I did a. I did. It started off as a piece for um, this yearly event that Stephen Coates puts on at Brompton Cemetery. It's called London Month of the Dead, and I did a a talk there based on um, looking at film locations where people have died in the film and looking at the ricochet in reality. So it's similar to English Heritage. Um, and I've just extended that, and it's been absolutely extraordinary. Um, it's completely blown my mind. I meant to write about thirty thousand words and it's hundred thousand words, but it's not fiction. It's looking at film.
1: Can you let us um, in on an example of that? Or yeah, yeah. They... The
2: films are. I look at. Uh, I look at. Um, I look at quite uh, not too obscure films across the spectrum, but I'm looking at the way the landscape has changed and the doubling of landscape and the events. Um, One particularly amazing kind of finding is this film called Herostratus, which is Mm. done by this guy called Don Levy, his only film, and I look at uh, some of the locations in there and uh, and the kind of strange doubling events that have happened at those exact locations and the actors. Uh, I do an amazing kind of uh, review of The Omen, I look at the the scene in Putney where the uh, where Father Brennan gets skewered by a lightning strike, and uh, um, some strange things have happened in my life as a result of looking at that and coincidences. Uh, yeah, it's it's London films have been absolutely fascinating, and I think uh, it's it's helped me. To, like I went in with a particular view of looking at film locations, but uh, but it's actually it's it it's actually give me a. a a glimpse into what I call capital unconsciousness. Mm. So, uh, so a double of like capitalism uh, mm. and the capital unconscious, and the way that you can never quite repress uh, history, and it just sort of, you know, the more they try and build on places, a lot of the places I went to went to kind of places like Thamesmead, um, mm-hmm. where they filmed uh, Clockwork Orange, and yeah. and at first I was gutted because all these places are getting completely um, demolished and they're, oh, all yeah. in, and they're all in these body bags and they're all in the body bags post Grenfell and there's something quite haunting about that mm. um, and you know you look at these buildings covered in this kind of polythene and you think yeah these are body bags you know uh, 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 and a, a sort of guilt based on Grenfell and things like that yeah. it's been really interesting in the last couple of years so this kind of idea of a capital unconscious the more you try to repress it with like scaffolding and um you know uh, a new fascia the more you create these kind of weird ironies so mm. that's what i'm looking at a lot at the moment
1: that sounds amazing
2: cool man um <laughs> thank you.
0: um andy thank you so much for coming on the show first of all that's been like an absolutely fascinating run through uh theory and history and culture and landscape um and uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel like anyone listening will have been furiously taking notes while you've been talking. I hope so. uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, we'd like to finish off. So um, obviously, you've spoken about a lot of like kind of uh, writers and musicians and stuff, and also like big up for being a Coil fan, because they are one of the most, they're such a, I love them so much. <laughs> like, I, think I listen to them us, obsessively. Yeah. Um, so kind of, uh, in that vein, um, signing off, could you re- maybe recommend our readers like a couple books and a couple tracks to like check out, or like bands or albums or whatever, um, you know, just kind of like a, a loose reading, slash listening list? Yeah,
2: yeah, sure. In terms of the books, uh, um, the b- books that have gone into this, I, I, um, oh that's a good question uh god yeah uh, just looking at my shelf now uh, <laughs> I, I mean at the moment um at the moment i'm reading a lot of uh, i'm reading burroughs's last three books but i would recommend um yeah. gordon burns born yesterday certainly okay uh, cool. as an influence but so that's a big big influence um yeah and also kind of there's a metafictional stuff i really like uh ballard's books it's nothing i wouldn't say there's nothing to ultra there um yeah. robert graves is the white goddess is a big big influence on the yes, project and, well. um, and i would recommend people actually reading that i mean a lot of people you know probably have it on the shelf but you dig into that and it just opens up very very interesting worlds uh, again you know it's it's to, to a sense it's 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 confabulated you know it's 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 a, it's a it's it's Graves' imagination, but he's 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 doing something similar that I that I'm hoping to do, but I'm doing mine with I'm doing like mine's a pulp mythology where his is yeah. like a classical mythology. Yeah, yeah, um yeah. It, you you know, it's a book to sit with. Uh Fulcanelli, who is a kind of another master prankster alchemist mm-hmm. called Mystery of Cathedrals, and these are all books that can be read again and again and dipped into. And I would add Atrocity Exhibition by JG Ballard into that. These yeah. books are not linear. This this they're circular. So, circular yeah. fictions are great for for changing your life. I think and in terms yeah. of music, obviously Coil. Um, let's let's think of some some someone that might not similar vein industrial stuff. Nurse with Wound were obviously big influence. Uh, were influenced by a guy called Robert Ashley. I'd recommend people listen to Robert Ashley stuff. Cool. Automatic writing. Um, that's very good. Uh, and. Um, Certainly Early Current Night 3, I loved. The first two albums are actually amazing. Really, really um, bleak kind of sound poems. Oh, um, Dogwood Rising uh, is an incredible album, really. Cool, man. Well, thanks so
0: much for joining us. Um, that's been awesome. And thank you for the Rex. Get yourselves down to Burley Fisher and buy the English Heretic Collection. Um, Andy, I think you might be popping in and uh, signing a few books.
2: I definitely will, yes. Yeah, That's just cool. drop us a line and say when you're open um, and I'll pop in. Cool, man. Say hello. Yeah. yeah, it'd be great to meet you. Yeah, thanks so much, dude. It's been awesome. All right, Good Good you take
0: care. Yeah. Thanks. Cheers, Cheers guys, Andy. Bye. Thank bye. bye now. Okay, thank you so much to Andy for being so generous um, with his time. That was uh... a... <laughs> fairly whistle stop tour through the book and we kind of didn't really scratch the surface um there's just so much so much great stuff in there um but yeah thank you so much andy and and you can get copies here uh, now but unfortunately that podcast was recorded pre-lockdown so we don't have any signed copies unfortunately but hopefully we will rectify that as soon as regulations allow um also coming out on Andy's Press repeated books, we've got lots of exciting things. And you're actually reading one of uh, another one of theirs
1: at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I Just came in. It's called uh, "Tales from the Dark Side," and it's a collection of horror stories compiled by Eugene Thacker and Terry Goddard. Really essential kind of short horror, um, and introductions to each story from various writers. Um, so yeah, there's just tons to get um, excited about.
0: There's loads of other new cool stuff as well. There's um, Blue Light on the Screen on Horror, Ghosts and God by Claire Cronin, which looks amazing. Can't wait to read that. Um, Of course, the late great Mark Fisher's uh, new compilation, uh, Post-Capitalist Desire, which was a kind of project that he was working on. There's also one that looks to be amazing, um, Darkly by Layla Taylor, which is a black history of America's gothic soul.
1: Oh, that Um, is cool, yeah.
0: They're an amazing press, and uh, there's lots of cool stuff out on there, so... Do uh, drop the line if you fancy ordering any of those other titles as well. Um, who have we got next weekend? I think we've got Olivia Sidic coming in, who's going uh, to be interviewed by Sam, who's a great friend of the shop.
1: Yeah, and we've got, um, it's all under a new kind of format um, mm-hmm. of Desert Island Books, which is mm-hmm. a, a, a genius masterstroke by yourself, wasn't it? I know, yeah.
0: absolute, an absolute theft. Um, <laughs> <clears throat>
1: yeah, where did you get the, the idea for that from? <laughs> Theft
0: of a beloved British radio format <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we can
1: steal the theme tune Because we could
0: maybe do it on like a really cheap synth Yeah, you call the cover
1: <laughs> I will, yeah <laughs> Hopefully they don't take me down
0: Apart from that, I don't really, I don't really know what else to mention um, Oh yeah, Indie Fictions, remember you Indie Fictions um, And again, that discount code is Let me just check my notes Sub thank you with the U, the letter U10 for 10% off both the fiction and poetry subscriptions. Um, and we've got a great site coming up this month. Uh, apart from that, we're just ticking on, you know. Um, oh, God, I'm running out of content. I'm always running out of content. Also, running.
1: like, if there are books coming out and you're a writer or a publisher or you're yeah. running a press and you want to get them on the pod, just drop us a line. Yeah,
0: that's podcast um, at earlyfisherbooks.com.
1: Yeah, we're always looking for stuff to get our teeth into, so. Sweet Uh, (laughs) as... I think
0: that'll be us, really. Yeah. Um, All right, well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Peace and love.
1: Bye now. Bye.